This is American Fashion Podcast. I'm Charles Beckwith, and my guest is Maxine Beda. She's the founder of the ethical fashion e-commerce platform Zadie, and has spoken on ethical, sustainable fashion issues around the world for the last several years. I think the two of us were both walking around getting strange looks from trade show vendors when we asked where the Made in USA products were and what their supply chains looked like eight or 10 years ago. Um, that's slight, slightly less strange question to ask them now. Um, as we both persisted with that question, for her, it has led to the creation of a new book that we'll be discussing in a moment here. The book is called Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. The book explores in great detail the end and life cycle of denim from fibers grown in the organic cotton fields of Texas through wash houses in China, cut and sew in other countries, the marketing and distribution of the finished products, and what happens when people eventually throw them away. And uh, we'll have a link to buy the book in the show notes, of course. Maxine Beda, welcome to American Fashion Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming. Um, <laughs> let, let's start with Zadie. What is Zadie and where did the idea for that come from? So um, Zadie was a fashion company and it, we got started in, um, which is no longer, I should uh, probably make that clear. Oh, you, you shut down uh, Zadie. Yeah, I shut down Zadie to start the New Standard Institute, which is the organization I run now. And I can kind of just walk through that trajectory because I think it sure. also explains the, the book. Um, but basically, Zadie was, it was meant to be at the outset kind of the Whole Foods of fashion. It was supposed to be, well, before Whole Foods was owned by Amazon, of course. Um, <laughs> um, it was supposed to tell the story behind beautiful product. And what ended up happening is, as we tried to tell the story behind beautiful product, which is why, like you, I was asking at trade shows where the products came from, um, I quickly realized, and we quickly realized on the Zadie team, that there wasn't a company that we could turn to that really knew its entire supply chain. Um, and so that then at Zadie led us to start down this path of creating our own products, our own garments. And we went um, to the actual supply chain um, and understood what it meant to farm, what it meant to ranch, what it meant to dye. To, um, to spin, um, to weave, to knit, to cut, and to sew. Um, and through that process, um, at Zadie, we would put out these kind of very, like, kid pick, super, you know, user-friendly, like, diagrams about the impact of the industry. And we would get brands much, much larger than ours reaching out to say, like, thank you so much. This information is so helpful for me and my team. And at that stage, I was like, what? Like, you don't, you don't know this stuff. <laughs> um, and it shouldn't, like now, of course, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was at the time. And what I really realized is um, if I really wanted to make an impact in the industry, it wasn't going to be through the creation of more clothing. Um, as low, you know, as much as we were working to reduce the impact. Um, if I really wanted to create impact, it was going to be through clear information and education um, and really bringing the, the scientists that I was beginning to engage with, um, you know, bring, bring them kind of front and center in the conversation because 
you know, up until very recently, um, and I would still argue to today, that sustainability has really been a conversation led by brands. And so that's meant something very specific um, and hasn't necessarily meant, um, you know, keeping in line with planetary boundaries um, in which, you know, people are fairly paid. So that was kind of the the impetus to um, really just, you know, it it was definitely a difficult decision to um, closed down Zadie. I think people are like, what were you doing? What are you doing? But, um, you know, I, I remember kind of speaking with um, our uh, person who ran PR, Jack, and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we didn't even have to sell clothing and we could just talk about the issues? And so um, that is what um, I decided to do. And that that's the new standard institute is really trying to just bring very clear information from the scientists, from people with actual lived experience, whether that's factory owners or factory workers or farmers or scientists. And then the kind of the impetus to create, um, to start the research for Unraveled was, you know, with Zadie, I got to see what the best-in-class facilities looked like. You know, I, I could tell you what an organic, you know, cotton field looked like. But I didn't know, um, you know, I read a lot of reports, but I didn't know, I didn't have on-the-ground experience with what did the rest, you know, what did an average garment look like? Um, and so that was, um, that was what I was trying to look for in, um, in creating this book was get, getting that understanding and meeting the actual people and, and places, seeing the places behind the things that most of us wear every day. Um, so that was, that was 80, that's NSI, and that, that was kind of the, the background for the book. Is the New Standards Institute a nonprofit or is it a for-profit company? It's a nonprofit organization. Okay. Uh, early in the book, um, I'm quoting here, uh, you say, at one point, genes may have represented an ideal of democracy and equality, but the genes our society is wearing have become frayed to the point of distaste. If we want to reclaim true democratic values, we need to re-examine how our political and economic systems are woven into the clothes we buy, wear, and discard. And the book goes from there. So <laughs> this is really cool. <laughs> <I'm hearing it. laughs> how did you start? Did, did it start with just starting to collect information and knowing you you had stuff to share or did you set out to create a book from the beginning so really the idea of the book came about at the same time um, as kind of the roots of the new standard institute Um, it it was really one and the same what what i think i did not realize i was writing until after i wrote it (laughs) was i thought that this was a book about the clothing industry and it was going to, you know, be a story about our clothes. What I didn't realize, and I remember having drinks with my editor at one stage in the middle of this, and I said, you know, um, or was my agent, sorry, I was like, you know, Alice, like, just so you know, (laughs) um, this book has kind of become not just about fashion, it's a bit of a critique of neoliberal capitalism. Um, And that is something I didn't intend to do, but when you start digging into the story of genes, um, that gets you into a story of cotton. Um, cotton then gets you into a story about slavery. Um, it gets you into a story about the institutions of capitalism. Um, you know, if you then kind of follow the path of, um, 
of our clothing then from the, the cotton fields, you know, you get into globalization and how that happened and why that happened and in which way it happened. Um, and you get into the, you know, the race to the bottom that um, kind of this fairly unregulated global system um, wrought. Um, and, and, you know, then kind of continuing it with, with cut and sew um, garment workers who are mostly women, you know, you, you see how, again, we have this a race to the bottom, both in terms of environmental protections and labor protections. Um, and then you see where it ultimately ends up, which is, uh, you know, um, right on, like quite back to where we started, which is in um, Ghana, uh, where a lot of our clothing ends up, which is really just a stone's throw away from Osu Castle, which has become kind of a symbol of the, um, of the, uh, trade route of enslaved people. So um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean for it to be about um, this kind of extreme capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever, however you want to um, uh, frame that. But um, it, you know, that's what our clothing is about. And I think also the, the, the part that really surprised me um, was looking at the kind of the history of marketing. Um, and I, um, discovered that the fashion season itself, um, it was created by Louis XIV, the Sun King in France, and it was he and his finance minister. And the finance minister, they decided that um, at the time Spain was the uh, kind of regional superpower, again, thanks to, you know, colonialism. <laughs> um, and uh, France had, you know, their economic path um, was through fashion. And so they decided to create the fashion season so that people would have to keep buying new things, which then um, it was the Sun King who also built Versailles, like makes me rethink what Versailles is. You know, it's like the best Instagram backdrop ever <laughs> um, for, you know, of that time, the equivalent at that time where then King Louis XIV would exhibit his... Um, fresh fashion wares that everybody then had to follow. Um, and so the finance minister said um, something, and it's in the book, but I'm paraphrasing here, that fashions were to France what the minds of Peru were to Spain. Um, and, and this idea then kind of if you advance forward, and I look again at um, kind of marketing in the United States in the, um, in the 50s, where it was a very um, deliberate um, and there are some crazy quotes in the book, deliberate um, ideas to get people to see themselves as consumers first and not citizens. And that really helped me understand kind of the political moment in which we have found ourselves in, you know, in this past year is that we have, you know, we've been pushed product um, and have not engaged in citizenship and have allowed a lot of, you know, terrible things to um, to take place in this country. And so I think that, um, you know, that is just something that I, I, I didn't think that I would, I wasn't like setting out to look for that stuff, but, but there it was. And it told a much kind of broader picture, even, um, I didn't know our clothing, you know, meant so much. Yeah. I, I was fascinated by one little bit in there about how the Louisiana purchase was actually shaped to have more cotton fields. Yep. Yeah, it was shaped, um, it was uh, kind of brokered by one of the, you know, big um, cotton financiers. So 
yeah, it's all these things in history that are um, not explained through the lens of fashion, but once we see it, uh, kind of helps us understand um, just how important um, fashion is and has been. Yeah. Uh, throughout history, often cosmetics and clothing have been also the story of humans because they're the closest things to us. They're, they're the things we have on the body at all times. Um, and they've just been a part of the story and, and driven the story at times. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I find it interesting and I, I argue in the book, you know, that, um, you know, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned cosmetics as well, because these are such important industries even today. Um, and yet when we think about industry, we don't think about clothing, we don't think about cosmetics. And I think that there is some gendered element to that, that we can't possibly think that an industry that is marketed towards women, made by women, um, could be um, an industry of such importance. And so I think, you know, part of part of my kind of drive in, in writing the book was to um, demonstrate the importance that our clothing um, has on our world, good, bad, and otherwise. And you focused early in the book on Texas, um, and you spoke to a, an organ, organic cotton farmer named Carl Pepper. Um, one thing you said in the book was more than half of all land used for cotton in America is in Texas. And yeah. I didn't really, I always think of <laughs> Mississippi and cotton for some reason, but I, I don't think of Texas and cotton. Yeah, Texas has um, kind of the nice dry land that cotton um, is, it works well with cotton. And so um, I think maybe Mississippi, we think about that because that's kind of from um, the early cotton days, but things have moved um, west to, you know, to Texas and, and California as well. And you go in quite a bit on soil ecology damage and, and uh, how to approach the recovery. You say in the book, uh, traditional farming practices, which included the rotation of crops and letting land be fallow to allow for nutrition to be built back into the soil, became displaced by extensive use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. And it were literally killing the soil by not letting it be soil. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, what, what strikes me, you know, is the language that we use around these things. Because we talk about conventional cotton or conventional, you know, agriculture and then organic agriculture. But if you told our forefathers and mothers this, they would like look at, a, you know, look at us extremely strangely because that organic, you know, cover crops and rotational grazing is how agriculture um, was, you know, always done until, you know, very, very recently. And so the fact that some, whoever ran the PR for, um, you know, chemical cotton by calling it conventional was quite brilliant on their part, but um, that, you know, that now we perceive that the conventional way, the standard way is this chemical laden way um, is, you know, nothing short of insane. <laughs> well, you have the stat here, 0.7%, 0.7% of the cotton produced is organic cotton. So that's less than 1%. Um, but then on top of that, we, we pile chemicals to process it. So something that may have a label of organic cotton, 
really has a lot of inorganic stuff piled on top of it before it becomes a product that people buy and then put on their bodies. So it's covered in chemicals. Yeah, I think that was, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make in the book is that, um, you know, because the industry has been driving the sustainability conversation, um, you know, it has been reduced to kind of these labels. And so I think, you know, well, on, on two fronts, when we talk about organic is one, I think I going into it had the idea that if something was organic, it, it meant that it was more sustainable, better for the um, climate. Um, but it isn't that exactly um, organic means that there are no synthetic um, fertilizers or pesticides used um, on the, the cotton field. It actually isn't tracking the soil health that we were just talking about. Um, and so that, I think, is just uh, confusing and, and misleading. And then over and above that, if you have an organic, you know, if a clothing is marketed as um, organic, I, I think, again, one would think that it means that the whole process is organic, but it doesn't. It just means that the cotton was not um, grown with synthetic chemicals and um, fertilizers. And so, you know, then it kind of, you think you're buying this good thing where, you know, when we actually look from a climate change perspective, the, the hotspot, the most significant area of impact is not on the farm. Um, it's on, it's at the textile mill. Um, and so, you know, I think the kind of want, like the importance to me of the book is helping people understand, um, you know, just where the different kind of areas of impact of our clothing are and to move away from this, um, this kind of empty language. Like organic is matters because it's a regulated word and unlike most of the other words used in this space um, is actually regulated. But we need to move away from this kind of black and white language of sustainable fashion versus everything else. There is no sustainable fashion. We're not like growing trees here. Um, it's, it's, it's really a matter of degrees of how much a, um, a garment or the process, but you know, the, the company behind it is working to reduce impacts on specific things, whether it's water, greenhouse gas, chemicals, labor standards. Um, but it's always a matter of degrees. And so I think what I really, you know, in trying to tell the story of our genes is also just helping people understand those degrees of difference and move away from this like place that we're in of marketing things as sustainable. How far are we from not just carbon neutrality, but chemical neutrality? Is that something we can even describe right now as to the, the gulf that we have to cross to not be putting toxins out there when we make something? Um, well, First, I think it's important, like not all chemicals are bad chemicals. Um, and I think the most important thing is that those the chemicals are well managed. And that is something we are far off from. And the reason I know that they are far off is I went to, to um, China and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and you see the rivers there. Um, and they are varying degrees of black and um, toxic smelling even and kind of burning your eyes. Um, and, you know, you, I, as I um, uh, demonstrate in the book, I, I walk to the back of some of these factories and you just see the effluents just 
bubbling out into the water that are then used as, you know, for the waters used to irrigate agricultural plots there. So we are, we are far, um, I don't want to say we're far away. It really is a matter of um, brands and companies um, putting this as a priority. Like these things are highly solvable. Um, they just haven't been prioritized. So I don't want to say we're far away. You know, if, if tomorrow companies decided that this was a real priority, it could be something, you know, a solution that is very much within reach. It doesn't require any technology um, that we don't have. Um, we have the wherewithal to, to manage these. Um, we just haven't created the incentives yet to do so. Yeah. Some of the statistics you quote in the book, uh, I kind of knew, but to see them in black and white was was like um, this one today, more than 98% of clothing Americans wear is made overseas. It, it just keeps it real to see that in print. Um, and it's so easy to feel an abstraction from these things. America's rivers are becoming cleaner and, and not many of us live close to an industrial farm center where we might notice that the natural bacteria in the soil is dying. So we're distanced from these signs mm -hmm. of danger. Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. And I think that's really um, one of the challenges when it comes to um, the fashion industry's impact and why people are less familiar with it is that we still have a conception, like I think the average American like knows what a farm looks like, right? They have some sort of idea, um, even if you're a city dweller. But you know, the the even the rise of the EPA came about in part because of um, the rivers looked black and the colors of the fashions of the day in the U.S. at one stage when it was it was made here, um, and and it was people seeing that and fighting back was kind of the roots of the Environmental Protection Agency. The same actually is the same on labor standards. It was women garment workers in New York that were the um, kind of the early fighters for labor protections and, you know, are, are credited in part with like creating basic things like the concept of the weekend. Um, and when we kind of created this globalized world in which we found ourselves in, um, there's nothing like, I don't think inherently wrong with globalization. It's just the way in which we implemented it, where it was like, all of a sudden, all of the things that we fought for and the standards that we fought for domestically um, were not advanced. They were just ignored globally. Um, and and that's, um, that's, you know, when in looking at the solutions and where do we go from here is we need to create that global framework so it's not this race to the bottom, it's, you know, can become a race to the top instead. Yeah. And th that idea of um, the unions pushing for an international quota for how much could come from an individual country. And then that actually had a massive backdoor to it where they started moving it to lots of countries so they could still import tons of stuff from other countries. It just wasn't one country they were getting it from. Yeah, and I think that as a lawyer, like, not all legislation is good legislation, right? Like, we often say, like, this industry needs to be regulated, which I agree, but, like, it, we need to be smart about it. Um, and I think we also, you know, the the book is very, is holistic and looks at things as a system, and I think that's really necessary because if we are to make 
you know, to, to create rules or policies or legislation um, that are to be effective, we need to see things um, as a system. And I, I can give you one example is um, in France, there was talk of the creation of um, a law that would not allow companies to um, burn their excess uh, material. And so what they would end up, you know, doing is then taking back their goods and just shipping it to the developing world, which is, our, you know, there's a chapter in the book where I'm in Ghana, um, and, you know, just shipping it there and causing even more, wreaking more havoc um, for, you know, countries in, of the global south. Um, that is re regulation, but not perhaps as well thought out as we might want. Um, you know, where in, instead of an incinera incineration for energy, where at least you get something out of it, it's just being, you know, uh, dumped in the global south. So we, we need to, you know, and, and I'm sure that that legislation was very well intended, right? Um, but we need to understand how the whole system works in order to, to make legislation that actually um, achieves what we're seeking to achieve. It, yeah, getting a law passed seems such a a struggle, and and they the representatives feel like they've achieved something when they get the law passed, but then they don't go back and check on it. Like six months down the road, eighteen months down the road, is it effective? And then we end up five, twelve years later, and oh, this has been broken for twelve years. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I think you know what um, I. Uh, spoke to and, and quoted from a um, professor at Harvard, Danny Roderick, who speaks about legislation as, you know, experiments um, and that they need to be iterative. And I think I, that approach um, really resonated with me. And I think that that's how we need to think about these things is that, you know, our fights have become um, so kind of... Um, based on like theory, right? And legislation, and this is, you know, me as a, <laughs> thinking as a lawyer again, you know, legislation is about developing these systems. And sometimes, you know, you have to see then what that, the rules that you create through legislation, what it results, and then kind of make changes based on that. Um, and I think if we thought more creatively about our laws and our um, kind of policies that we create and think about them in this way, there would be less um, you know, we could, it would be less about theoretical fights and more about, you know, solving common problems. Yeah. I'm going to read another ex excerpt here. Um, the gin warehouse and marketers who triangulate the transactions might all be different entities. And when each of them takes a cut, it lowers farmers' earnings, increases the price of cotton products, and stops information sharing between cotton growers and cotton buyers. And then you also mentioned in the book, the Texas Organic Cotton Marketing Cooperative. I went to college in Wilmington, North Carolina, and there's a large old agricultural building in downtown Wilmington called the Cotton Exchange, which is now a nice shopping center which, with a bunch of little shops where you can buy seashells with lighthouses painted on them or t-shirts that say, what, what part of y'all don't you understand? Uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. But a hundred plus years ago, it served as a a very different purpose. It was a trading center where cotton bales were physically traded for export. Today, cotton exchanges aren't just buildings, they're massive 
companies and, and cooperatives and, and different types of organizations. What's the function and purpose of a cotton exchange today? And how does the cooperative for marketing in Texas work differently? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the, the exchanges today kind of anonymize both you know, parties, basically. Um, and so it, it has turned you know, cotton into a commodity crop where it's really just based on a grade um, and you know, the assessment on the, the outside of the bale. Um, and what you know, Carl Pepper um, persuasively argued, at least to me, um, is that you know, so for a, a traditional, not a traditional, I have to be careful of these words. For most farmers today, <laughs> for most cotton farmers, um, you know, they, um, they're everything ends for them at the gin. They deposit their um, cotton, they get paid there, and they walk away, and they ha they don't have any insight into um, what company, where their product is going. Um, but what Carl was able to do and through this, the um, organic marketing cooperative, is that they maintain the relationship with their, um, with their customers, so with, you know, um, brands and suppliers. And so what he was saying is he is able to communicate with the brand saying, you know, this is what we're seeing on the ground uh, you know, it's rained uh, early on Tuesday. So, you know, and, you know, in, in farming, it really is about, you know, whether it's rained one day or not. Um, but he can give an accurate assessment to the brands um, and to companies of what they can expect, which allows them to plan better. Um, and and um, he gets more of the profit because there's, there's uh, fewer middle people involved. <laughs> Um, and, um, and he, it, it's a, it's a more, um, kind of concrete relationship with, uh, with the companies that he works with. And, and I remember that from Zadie days, um, you know, with speaking with our wool supplier, um, you know, getting to understand what the, what the factors were, um, on the ranch helped us assess, you know, and helped us be able to plan better. And so I think that there is something to be said about, um, kind of having these more direct relationships. And also, I think kind of the whole history of clothing demonstrates that the closer relationships you have with your suppliers, the better you're able to manage them. Um, and that goes from, you know, having cotton farmers not, you know, completely destroy their soil with uh, synthetic, you know, pesticides and, um, um, and other, you know, and other chemicals to, you know, how the garment worker is being um, paid in places like Bangladesh. Um, and I think that's like another kind of part of the story of the book that um, was surprising to me as I, as I did the research was um, how it was, it used to be that factories would create brands um, and the factories were the ones, you know, it was their mark of quality. Um, and then with globalization, the incentives all switched. And so the, and, um, Levi's kind of ended up being the, you know, the center of all of this being pushed into this, um, way where it was no longer the factories that created the brands. The brands actually didn't create anything anymore. Um, and that was, you know, the, when the supply chain just kind of got disconnected. And so you didn't have any oversight or management or ownership in a, real or even theoretical way over what suppliers were doing, which is what creates this whole like 
race to the bottom. You quote a figure in the book, Farmers National Company says 70% of the farmland in the United States will transfer ownership over the next 20 years. Is that a generational change? Yeah, so um, it's a huge change that's taking place in um, agriculture right now. And I think that's such an exciting shift that is taking place um, because when you know, um, and it was really interesting because I checked back in with Carl. Um, I visited his farm before um, COVID-19 hit. And um, I checked in with him kind of um, at, at the height of COVID um, here in the U.S. And he, um, he was, he sounded, you know, much more optimistic and kind of in asking him why, he said, there are a lot of young people, you know, that are tinkers just like me that are coming into this industry. And I think that that, you know, the, like, the way in which we do things now does not have to be the way in which we do things tomorrow. Like things change and can change. And um, this next generation coming in, you know, can be the tinkers like Carl that are ready to try these new practices and do things differently um, uh, and, and change, you know, farming as we know it. I want to talk a bit about a change that you brought up in how people and government regard corporations. Um, and how they've skewed from the original intent. You write, making the most money is not actually how or why the corporate form, the legal entity of most large corporations was created. It was first created to help pool capital, to develop large projects for the common good, things like train tracks and hospitals. And you say, the whole model was founded upon our democratic ideals. The people elect the government that would provide charters to allow companies to be started for the people's benefit. What prompted this shift from the stakeholder model to the shareholder model? And, and how do you feel people starting companies now and thinking about electing representatives should regard this? So the shift um, took place, you know, it, it, uh, it took time, but um, some professors over at the University of Chicago are um, uh, were definitely central and in it, in it um, and one of them um, being Milton Friedman, um, and it it you know a, this wasn't something that surprised me. This was actually in a textbook of mine um, of corporations from law school, and I luckily kept all my all my textbooks because I had this vague memory of this, and so I went to go actually um, go back and reference the book to make sure that I didn't have my um, that my memory was not mistaken. Um, and that, when I read that originally, you know, it was so striking to me because we think, you know, I, we think about corporations like, of course, like the natural order of things is that they're profit seeking. Um, and just to kind of understand the origin and that it, like, it wasn't about that. It was a, um, a means, you know, as, as you already said, um, to pool capital, um, and, and the kind of democratic nature of, of things you know, that um, it's government that bestows the legal infrastructure for companies and corporations to exist. And that just really blew my mind. You know, when you really think about it, kind of where, where companies are now and kind of what we think of them, it's so far removed from that idea. Um, and, um, and, you know, again, I think it was well-meaning people, um, but, you know, what I've come to, to realize um, is that whenever 
whenever you're making these kind of big, broad pronouncements about, you know, as Milton Friedman said, um, that the only social responsibility that corporations have is profit. Um, when you kind of make these like blanket statements, then they end up having a lot of unintended consequences. Um, and so I'm sure from the vantage point that he was thinking, there was real good reason to think that way. But we have to be much more, um, you know, opened and nuanced, I think, um, in seeing what these kind of dogmatic language of any kind, um, what they result in. Um, and so I think that we need to... Um, it, it's actually interesting, Charles, because, um, you know, when we were, when I was first researching the book, um, you know, I was talking with, speaking with my editor and I was like, this is, you know, it's really out there because like I'm critiquing capitalism and I'm not sure people are ready for that. Um, and then, you know, to when we were doing the final edits for the book and I was like, ask, you know, there was one part that I really wanted to keep in and she like didn't understand why. And I said, I know this is crazy, but like in the time that we started drafting to now, like now I actually have to defend capitalism. <laughs> um, and that there, you know, it isn't about <clears throat> kind of one dogma versus another. You know, we have to see the benefits in markets, but make these markets work um, for the benefit of all of us, how they were initially intended. Um, so I'm sorry, I don't think I actually answered your question. And that was a bit of a a bit of a long exploration, but I hope touched on. <laughs> no, the, um, people should read the book. <laughs> it's in there. Uh, it's in there. <laughs> one thing you mentioned was that um, China's power grid is more dependent on fossil fuels than America's or Europe's, and that uh, 75% of the clothing industry's carbon footprint comes from textile production. Um, and the, the whole fashion industry contributes between 4 and 8.1% of the world's total carbon footprint. But this is, this is based on weird kind of random estimates because nobody really knows what's going on inside of China and inside of Vietnam and Bangladesh because we're not able to track all those numbers. Th these are all rough estimates, right? Yeah, I wouldn't maybe characterize as random, but um, yeah. but I would agree with you that they attempts. are pure, they, yeah they are attempts, <laughs> um, and they um, you know none of it um, is coming from peer reviewed um, journals, which would be the you know yeah. at least give us some confidence. But based um, on the estimate, you say fashion contributes the same level of greenhouse gases as France, Germany, and the UK combined. So the fashion industry stacks up against France, Germany, and England. Altogether. Yeah, and that's even at the it's lowest, crazy. the lower, the lower estimate. Yeah, and I think that goes back to again, like what we were speaking about before, which is that um, people can't conceive of the impact of the industry because it's not in front of us, right? And so, like when we were taught about climate change, you know, and our role in it, I think people can envision, you know, the cars and the exhaust coming out of the cars, and like they physically put gas into their car. And so I think like that. <clears throat> people can see. Um, and, you know, the aim of the book is to get people to see, um, you know, that that when we have these really energy intensive processes, and those processes are connected to an electric grid that runs on fossil fuels, primarily coal, that's going to have, and then we only wear our clothing for, you know, ha it has a very short life in our closet, um, that 
is going to um, result in a significant, you know, contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Are things like the UN's Sustainable Development Goals aggressive enough to make a difference? Or is that just more greenwashing that makes it easier for corporations to, to check a box and, and to ignore the immediate problems they're causing? I think the Sustainable Development Goals are good um, kind of overarching themes and goals to have in mind. But I think... <clears throat> Again, trying to be the lawyer in this, in this <laughs> book. Is that what I, what I wanted to clarify? And I think, you know, people think of these goals and human and rights um, as things that exist, you know, that um, are legally binding in the way that if we don't pay our taxes, we're going to go to jail um, or at least uh, pay a fee. Um, uh, but they're not. And the kind of internet, these, the UN can have guidance, but it's up to legislators um, to implement them. Um, and so <clears throat> any of the, you know, things coming out of the UN are not legally binding. You can't send a country to jail, you know? <clears throat> um, and, and so they, they can only be um, guidance. And what we, what we need to do is have policy and, and regulation and legislation that puts the, you know, the same gains that we built and then, you know, continue to build off of them because the gains we made domestically were far from perfect, um, you know, to, to set a level playing field globally, which we can do through our own domestic laws, especially in places like the EU and the United States, which have such a massive market. And so what you, you know, what the United States can do, or even a large state um, can say, if you want to sell to our market, you have to play by our rules. Um, and that's a way that we can use domestic law to have kind of um, international reach. Yeah, it's like we could immediately say you can't bring clothing into the country unless you certify that the labor was at least half of American minimum wage. And that would change the whole ballgame overnight. Yeah, we could do that. But we, we could do that, but we haven't. We haven't. <laughs> yeah. One scratches one's head. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's because a lot of orders were already placed and, and those products have already been produced and they're on ships on the way. And it's a, yeah. it's a giant snowball. I it, It's, you know, but these things, I think it's important to see that these things are addressable. You know, you we can laws do change and we can we can change we just have to envision what that change would be i would add just one nuance that i think where um and this you know nsi we've been calling for this discussion is that um you know like the the former um ceo of h&m kind of argued that without these very bad jobs you know people there wouldn't have jobs at all um and it's not um an argument that i like <laughs> Um, but what I, what I do think is that um, we do need to move the conversation to if these jobs are not, you know, if, if we set a floor of what wages should be, what, and the, and the fashion industry, or let's say the fashion industry decides that they, they can't produce this much clothing and still exist within planetary bounds, and so we have to slow down, and let's, let's just say for the sake of his argument that that would mean that factories would have to close. 
I think we need to think about uh, from a development perspective, um, what are the industries, both like internationally and domestically? You know, it's a, it's a similar thing about like the, the coal miners, right? Like what are the other industries they should have? What are the other industries that a country like Bangladesh um, should be, you know, investing in and growing um, that will, you know, provide for jobs, but good jobs, well-paying jobs, because this industry is not providing it. Yeah, it, it's, it's like it's the, the foundation of the global economy is just low-paying low paying fashion jobs, and then everything else kind of stacks on top of it, yeah. which is kind of why it gets dismissed so easily, even though it has such a massive impact on everything. Yeah, and we can't forget the gendered component there that it's the, and there, it is the lowest paying of the industries. There's a, a chart comes to mind. Um, and, you know, it's mostly women. So, like, there's, you know, a gender disparity there as well. Yeah. Um, you had a fixer sneak you in posing as a buyer at a wholesaler's operation and got to see in here a lot you maybe weren't supposed to. Um, quoting here from the book, through a haze of cigarette smoke, the wholesaler informed me that his clients included Forever 21, which I believed based on the display of ripped acid-washed jeans he showed off. And that was just the beginning. Can you take us through your adventure that day? <laughs> it was quite an adventure. Yeah, so um, I, you know, first in, in driving to this area, you just see um, it's the kind of denim capital of, of the world, basically. And, you you know, as we were driving through to, to get to speak to this man, um, there was just like open warehouses where people were sitting on stools, like just onto the street, um, sewing and finishing jeans. Um, and, you know, it was like really just a denim city. Um, and so then, um, you know, after driving through that and parking and um, going up to this man's firm, um, uh, yes, he displayed a, a plethora of... Um, uh, acid washed, uh, looks. Um, and I, I, um, I was pregnant at the time and I, you know, wasn't wearing any makeup and I was just very innocently like asking him questions. And I think that, um, innocence helped <laughs> our perceived innocence. Um, and I was just like, I've never been yet. This is so fascinating to me. I've like never gotten to do this. And, um, how does, like, how does this all happen? Um, and so, you know, he showed me, <laughs> um, and first we went and he, you know, he took me cause it was the showroom that we started in. And then he, um, took me upstairs to, um, where they were doing the, um, finishing. And so that was just piles of half finished, um, jeans, you know, that would be definitely failing any OSHA, you know, um, uh, review. Um, and, you know, just these like piles and piles of jeans, um, people hunched over sewing machines. And then I said, um, but like, how, where does the, where does the denim come from? Like, I'm just so curious. <laughs> and so then he, um, he said, oh, it's, I think like my cousin or something. And I was like, can I see it? I've never, I've never seen this before. And so, um, you know, he was very uh, kind, and he sent me with his um, assistant 
um, you know, down a drive. And I, it was quite terrifying because um, there were, I think he was like watching three different music videos while driving with like three different phones displayed in various parts of his car. Um, and we went to, um, we went to the, uh, that was the wash house um, and the, um, and the weaving was in the same location. Um, and that was very different from a, any wash house that I have seen where there was just chemicals sloshing onto the floor. Um, I was very lucky that I was wearing rubber soled shoes that day because they were just like, it, the floor was just full of chemicals. And then on the side of the building, there was stairs that like were missing different steps along the way. And I remember the driver, the, uh, the CEO's assistant was like, you know, kind of looked at me. We didn't, he didn't speak English and I, you know, don't um, speak Mandarin. And he kind of looked at me funny, um, like, are you really going to do this pregnant kind of look? Um, and I just kind of, you know, gingerly went up and um, there they were spraying, um, you know, this pink spray for finishing on the denim, which I then um, kind of later researched as a, a known carcinogen and one person was wearing a mask. Um, but that was, you know, that's the part that we're not supposed to see. And then um, I left that facility, you know, we said goodbye and I went back um, without the driver or anybody from the company and I went back um, and just saw that the effluence, the chemical stuff that was on the floor, just there was a, um, a pipe that just went straight into the river. And I went into that river that was like black and oil slick um, and, you know, just bubbling with chemicals. And, you know, I, I walked away in um, and, you know, you saw it was this quiet setting of, you know, agricultural plots next to this black acrid river, um, to which then I went back and did desk research about how, you know, the health effects of um, all those chemicals, you know, on the agriculture that on the agricultural products that are then uh, consumed in those areas. So it's um, it's pretty devastating what what we're doing that we don't see. Yeah, the the human cost is enormous. It is, and in ways we don't, you know, um, even think about. It's not just the low wages; it's the it's the working conditions and the um, the whole health effects of the of the region. You know, there are all the kind of the fashion supply chain is kind of littered with dead rivers um, that are kind of so polluted they can't support any form of life. And in, and the, and what's crazy is like this. You know, the the um, my guide not on that day but a, a different day um, looking at a different Black River. Um, what you know told me how just his his own grandparents. This is a you know, a guy younger than me, that his grandparents talked about how they swam in that river um, and how it was, you know, crystal clear. And so we were doing this within a generation. But we can undo it within a generation, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember something you wrote in there. Um, I think you were quoting somebody who's a scientist about how we don't really understand how the biology of soil works. We, we don't understand all the processes that happen around crops and, and around the land. Um, it, it's something we've gotten into, but we're, we're 
really don't have a great grasp of it. Yeah, it's a new um, area in terms of the science. And I think, you know, I, I really tried to, um, I tried as much as possible in the book to not come at things with a, um, you know, preconceived notions and just go where with where the data and, and the people that I met with what they said. Um, and there is this idea um, in some circles, and I think, again, very well-intentioned that, um, you know, soil is the, the solve for climate change. Um, and, you know, what I think I, I wanted that to be true. I want that to be true. Um, uh, because, you, you know, you see how, um, you know, the damage that the current, um, you know, use of synthetic pesticides and insecticides and <clears throat> fertilizers are doing. But when you look at the research and speak to the scientists studying those things, it's not entirely clear yet. And so um, there is uh, very clear science and consensus within the scientific community about how these regenerative agricultural practices that we were talking about before, the you know, uh, rotational grazing and things like that, how they um, improve soil health and they um, help um, absorb water. Um, but they, there is not scientific consensus on whether, you know, the, um, the ability of soil to absorb um, carbon in the atmosphere. And so, you know, again, it's um, arguing for nuance here <laughs> um, and for iteration. You know, I hope that, you know, one day there will be an, a scientific consensus and we can really, you know, lean into that as a solution. But we can't be um, dogmatic before the, you know, the science bears out. One of my main takeaways from the book so far has been if you check out the label on your clothes, it won't tell you what chemicals were used to make them. And then you go on to say, if a garment says it's made from 100% organic cotton, it only means the cotton was grown without the prohibited pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, fertilizers, etc. Organic has nothing to do with the chemical processes that we just went through in great, de great detail in the textile creation phase. Beware of brands that overpromise and equate organic with non-toxic, clean, or safe, which if the great population knows this, it will probably hurt organic brands. But I think we talking about it on this show where not a lot of consumers listen to this, it's people in the business. Hopefully this give, gives people running those brands time to rethink that. And, and to take those steps to to clean up what's going on between it being organic cotton and being a finished product. Yeah, and the, the aim of the book is not to say don't buy organic um, cotton and choose conventional. It's more to, um, to have people understand whether that's people within the industry or your, you know, average citizen um, that, you know, the organic is not the is not the be all and end all. Um, and, you know, and to, to really understand the, um, the full impact of the clothing that we purchase. And I think that the other kind of main, you know, reason that we really need to do this and this kind of through line of our conversation about the industry itself driving sustainability, the sustainability conversation is that if you market something as like organic or sustainable, then the, it becomes uh, like, 
oh, this is something I can buy and feel good about versus everything else. But the biggest driver of impact reduction is not how the product is made, it's how often we wear it. Um, and so by, by, by kind of making language more accurate, <laughs> Uh, people can understand that it's not like, oh, this is some like here. This is something that you know you can purchase with abandon. Um, it's it's this the clothing that we produce is always going to be resource intensive, no matter how thoughtfully we're doing it. Um, and so the the role you know beyond pushing for uh, policy change, um, you know, from your actual purchasing practices is to um, love the things you buy and buy fewer of them. What was your biggest surprise in, in all of your work to, to bring this together? It's hard to say a biggest surprise. There were, you know, little, um, not little, there were revelations <laughs> along the way. Um, I think there were some, um, you know, parts that I found, you know, truly um, devastating. And one of them was a woman I met in Sri Lanka, and this is in the book as well, um, who um, spoke to me about her work in the garment industry. And in um, Sri Lanka, I think this is in um, other, um, other apparel industries as well, is there's a move to um, day labor, because uh, it's very hard for garment workers to um, live up to the expectations of full-time work, <clears throat> especially if they have other obligations like parents. Um, and so this woman was um, had become a day laborer in the garment industry. <clears throat> and in um, Colombo, um, there's export processing, kind of the export processing zone, and these day, these garment workers like live on the outskirts or around the export processing zone. And she told me about um, being um, picked up. Uh, you know, they they start in the early morning, and they kind of um, the the women you know gather in the corner and wait for these um, uh, day labor companies to, to come pick them up and take them to whatever factory they might work in. Um, and she told me, um, she said, but, you know, sometimes they don't take us to a garment factory. And I was like, what does that mean? She said, well, sometimes they take us, um, to a massage parlor. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know how to respond to that. And so I asked the translator, um, does, does that mean what I think that it means? Um, and, um, she told me yes, and they, they were just, you know, talking between themselves. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know what to tell her. Um, and I, those are the stories that, um, that I want to remember, um, because it's easy to come back and like, just, you know, get back in the swing of your daily lives and kind of, um, forget the people, you know, behind our things. Um, but that's their lives. Um, and we, you know, have the power to, to change that. And, and, um, it's not, you know, it's their lives are intertwined with the things that we, we wear. They're a part of, they're a part of our lives, whether we want it or not. 
The book Unraveled the Life and Death of a Garment is available now. There will be a link to buy it in the show notes. But I would also suggest that executives listening to this reach out to Portfolio Penguin and make bulk orders at special markets at penguinrandomhouse.com and through your local bookstore. Get this into the hands of all your employees and as many other fashion industry professionals as you can. This book is a wake-up call and a roadmap, and I think everyone in the entire industry should read it. Maxine, thank you so much for being on the show, but also for all the hard work, work you did to bring this incredible resource to life. I hope you can come back again soon. Thank you so much, Charles. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to American Fashion Podcast. AmericanFashionPodcast.com is our website. You can access over 250 previous episodes by subscribing to our archive on the website. There is also a Be a Guest form on the site where you can reach out to us about being a guest on the show. On Twitter, we're at AFPOD, and on Instagram, we're at American Fashion Show. If you particularly like an episode, please give us a shout-out and tag us on social media. Our voicemail line is 646-979-8709, or you can email info at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. But again, if you want to be a guest on the show, please use the Be a Guest form on the website. American Fashion Podcast is produced by Mouth Media Network, audio for business. If your company or organization needs a podcast, reach out to Mouth Media Network podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com. This and all other episodes are copyrighted by Mouth Media Network Incorporated, all rights reserved. Subsist, friends. Keep making things beautiful. Remain in force, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>